Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a lecture entitled Combat Trauma and the Tragic Stage, Ancient Drama and Modern Catharsis by Professor Peter Meinick of New York University. This lecture is the fourth in a series of Frankie lectures on the topic of Greece and Rome continued. So I asked Emily earlier and a couple of other people, I said I have two papers. One is more formal and more for classicists and one is a little bit more personal. Which one would I like to read? And I could take a vote, but I bet you, you want the more personal one. So I'm going to go with that one today. And um, normally I don't read papers when I present, but it's funny, when I, when I talk about the combat veteran program, I, I find the paper uh, helps me. Maybe that's because my own style of presentation is a bit light sometimes, and this is not a light subject. Although there's been great levity in, in, and great joy in many aspects of this program. Um, and I, I'm hoping that the paper will be fairly short, and then I want to show a clip at the end, and I'm hoping there'll be time for discussion, because I think it's a shame sometimes when we have papers, and I really want to hear from you guys and, and create a discussion about this, because I don't have all the answers. Um, and I'm really talking to you about the program that we won the Chairman Special Award for, from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, the NEH don't give money to theatre companies. They tell you to go across the hall to the NEA. Um, uh, but the NEH actually have more money than the NEA, uh, and uh, the NEA don't have much money at all, unfortunately. Uh, and we persuaded them that theatre could actually be a delivery device for the humanities. And uh, they agreed, and, and we created this program that I'll talk about that took classical material to 100 sites across America. And the one thing I'm most proud of as a classicist and a theatre person is that it was the largest grant they gave, uh, $800,000, uh, because they really believed that this was a cutting-edge programme, and it was a classics programme. Of all the humanities, they gave it to a classics programme. So we were really proud of that. And I think my life's work has been trying to get people as excited as I was when I went to University College London and I met Pat Easterling, who's one of my Earth Mothers, and I was literally just out the Royal Marines and, you know, shaved head and sitting there, and I, I, I wanted to study Rome, right? And uh, it was a Greek drama class, and she said, you should study Aeschylus, because he was a soldier like you, and it was like a light going off for me. And so the passion that I, I feel for ancient drama go, goes way back to her as, as, as my teacher, and in a way, with Aquila and my work uh, I've done since, I, I hope to pass that on. So, let me uh, hit this paper. The effects of combat trauma are well described in the dramatic literature of the ancient Greeks. The madness of Heracles, the rage of Achilles, the suicide of Ajax, the isolation of Philoctetes and the trials of Odysseus, to name just a few. Much of the narrative content of Athenian tragedy reflected a preoccupation with the consequences of violence and war. In fact, I actually think that every single extant Greek play deals directly with trauma and war and violence. And I, I sort of throw that challenge out sometimes. Throw me a Greek play and I'll throw back how it's about violence, trauma and war. Maybe we can do that at the end. And normally Iron gets thrown out as a play that's not about violence, trauma and war, but au contraire, it really is. Uh, these plays were produced at a time of almost constant conflict in the Greek world where warfare was an ever-present threat. In Athens, where political enfranchisement was dependent on military service, the development of tragedy was closely linked with rapid social change in political and military culture that was responding to both external and internal martial threats. Perhaps this is why Athenian tragedy reflects a deep and frequently disturbing anxiety about warfare, combat and violence. In this paper, I suggest 
that Athenian tragedy offered a form of performance-based collective catharsis or cultural therapy by providing a place where the traumatic experiences faced by the spectators was reflected upon the gaze of the masked characters performing before them. Uh, I'm going to mention masks now. It's another thing I'm working on. Um, I think the masks are really important to catharsis, and I have various uh, theories of why, and I'm including that in, in my new book. And I'm, I'm actually working with some neuroscientists on some fMRI studies involving people looking at masks, because I think the masks are an essential element of the emotional attachment to ancient drama. And this word catharsis, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. My focus here will be on the notion of nostos, or homecoming, as perceived by combat veterans, their families, and the society to which they have returned. As we possess no critical or anecdotal responses to tragedy from the 5th century, my methodology is to compare the presentation of violence and the effects in tragedy with ancient accounts of soldiers' experiences in combat. While this can reveal a great deal about the social, ethical and political aspects of a play, it cannot reconstruct how the work itself functioned in performance. The original performance can never be recaptured. A re-performance, even in a different cultural milieu, can still, however, offer important information on how an ancient play may have been received. A theatre performance is an extra-textual event where the spectator experiences the words and actions of a play in the moment as part of a collective entity, the audience, you. This is a completely different experience to the more contemplative and singly personal relationship of the reader to the text. With this in mind, Philip Auslander's coined the term liveness to describe a performance in its original social, political and environmental context. Auslander challenges the supremacy of the play script by describing it as a blueprint for performance and does not consider writing to be a form capable of recording the totality of a live event. Any attempt to examine the impact of tragedy and performance must surely take this concept of liveness into account. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do in all my work, is I'm not suggesting that what I'm putting on stage in front of you is a reconstruction of what the Athenian audience was seeing, but I think it's valid that if you place the same play on stage, even in a, to a different culture, a different audience, there's some commonalities. There's some things you can tease out of that performance, and we can bring that back into our scholarship of classicists. To only study these plays as a text seems to me to negate the fact that they are performances. The text is, in effect, a recording of that performance. If ancient Athenian drama, then, did indeed attempt to address the psychological concerns of an audience that included a significant number of combat veterans, then some valuable insights into the reception of these plays in antiquity might be gleaned by observing them in performance to an audience of combat veterans today. And maybe I can... And here's, uh, here's some of our uh, performers. Actually, I'm going to boast a little bit now. They're performing at the White House. Um, you know, uh, we, we were given a grant to go to underserved communities, and I think the White House sometimes fits that category. And, um, uh, and actually, these, these three actors performing here are all combat veterans who are also actors. Um, uh, one is a Vietnam veteran, one is an Iraqi war veteran, and one is a ranger who'd done five tours of both Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but the, the power that these guys brought to these, these readings, which I'll discuss, was incredible. This approach is encapsulated in the basic premise of Aquila Theatres and the National Endowment for Humanities' Ancient Greeks Modern Lives programme, which uses stage readings of epic and tragedy to create a public discourse on the issues surrounding the homecoming of the warrior. 
These readings by both actors and veterans are followed by a town hall-style meeting led by a scholar and are presented at performing arts centres, public libraries and other local cultural institutions in 100 sites all over the United States. Um, one of the things we're proud of is we've hired about 60 classics professors. We've paid them cash money, right? And we've sent them out into public libraries and community centres to, to meet with people. And this has been a remarkable facet of the programme and has actually changed a lot of the uh, ideas that some of our, uh, our colleagues in classics have had about public outreach. So we've been very proud of that, uh, that aspect of the programme. And some of you may also know um, a similar programme by my friend Brian Doris, Theatre of War, where he does a programme with readings, and his programme goes on to military bases. The difference with our programme is our programme is a humanities-based programme. It doesn't have to toe the military line. It goes to a public library or a public space, and it can say and do what it likes. And I think that's been one of the successes of it, and I think why a lot of members of the veteran community have, have responded quite well to it. The live performance is thus contextualised within its original ancient culture and then placed alongside the contemporary experiences of the veterans and their family members in the audience. Of course, in any such comparative study, cultural differences must be taken into consideration. Nevertheless, the parallels between ancient play, primary source material and modern responses are frequently striking. Although... Um, let's do that. Although a modern combat veteran may not be cognizant of the culture of 5th century Athens, he, and now much more frequently she, often has a visceral understanding of the situations and emotional responses of characters such as Ajax, Philoctetes, Heracles or Tecmessa. Since October 2001, approximately 1.6 million American men and women, I think that number's higher now, have served in Iraq or Afghanistan. 1.6 million. Contributing to a total of around 25 million living veterans who have served in US forces. It's estimated that around 300,000 Iraq and Afghanistan veterans are likely to suffer some form of post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury. And an additional, an, an additional 320,000 may have experienced traumatic brain injuries. Um, the latest figures from the VA are that there are as many as 10 suicides a day of veterans. And uh, the problem with, with statistics is uh, I work a little bit with the VA, and when I asked them about these numbers, I said, where do these numbers come from? And they say, well, people reporting to the VA. So I said, well, how many veterans report to the VA? About 15%. So the figures may be much, much higher. It's worrying. The issue of Nostos, homecoming, as it pertains to the warrior, has a particularly timely and urgent relevance. The theatre of Dionysus, here it is, was in many ways a locus for the staging of returns. The festival of the city Dionysia, where tragedy was presented, was established to help define the city as a place where the, des the disparate inhabitants of Attica would return to the same time every year to celebrate the annual arrival of Dionysus in the spring. This new festival was created in the mid-6th century and was modelled on the old arrival traditions of the various rural Dionysian public celebrations held throughout the towns and villages of Attica. It soon developed into a mass processional, sacrificial and performative celebration of Athens as the centre of Attic cultural life. In effect, the city Dionysia offered Attic citizens a ritual homecoming by drawing them to the southeast slope of the Acropolis, the heart of the Athenian national identity, described by Aeschylus in the Eumenides as the eye of the entire land of Theseus. 
Reinforcing the concept of Nostos, the idol of Dionysus was removed from its shrine in the sanctuary prior to the festival and taken outside the city limits to be then paraded back inside in a reenactment of the Dionysian return. According to some sources, the return statue may have been placed in the theatre, the theatron, the viewing place, as a divine spectator. Many of the tragedies staged at the Theatre of Dionysus explored the concept of Nostoi from conflicts and wars, portraying the devastating aftermath and its effects on women, children, households and the community at large. For example, Aeschylus' Persians tells of the homecoming of Darius after his defeat by the Athenian-led forces at Salamis. Suppliants relate to the return of the daughter of Danaeus, a descendant of Io, to their ancestral land of Argos, threatening a war between Egypt and Greece. Agamemnon depicts the effects of the Trojan War on Argos and the disastrous Nostos of Agamemnon himself. In Seven Against Thebes, Polynices returns home at the head of an invading army intent on sacking his city and seizing power from his brother. In the extant plays of Sophocles, Ajax prefers suicide over a dishonourable Nostos. The marooned and wounded Philoctetes is desperate to return home, but not if it means going to Troy and aiding Odysseus who he despises. Antigone cannot abide the sight of her unburied brother after the war on Thebes and chooses to bury him, a decision that results in even more death. And in the plays of Euripides, Heracles' homecoming should have saved his family, but he goes berserk and murders his wife and children. Other plays by Euripides, such as Trojan Women and Hecuba, deal directly with the traumatic effects of a long siege for an audience who were themselves, remember, the Athenians, suffering the annual siege of their city by the Spartans during the Peloponnesian War. In Athenian tragedy, homecomings are frequently violent and destructive. Tragic nostoi are fraught with the complexities of combat trauma. The original audience members of these plays knew the effects of violence and warfare intimately. While mass, mos, while mass hoplite battles were fairly rare, even more limited skirmishes between smaller numbers of Greek infantry would have been sudden and violent. Hoplite engagements would mean that an enemy combatant would have to be brought down at close quarters with the spear, either under or over the shield, or by hacking at the head, arms and legs with a short sword. Such penetrating or lacerating injuries would have produced a great deal of blood. There is no doubt that hoplite warfare was brutal. At the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC, a Spartan warrior named Anestos killed the Persian general Maradonius by crushing his skull with a rock. At the Battle of Thermopylae, the Spartans resorted to fighting with their bare hands and teeth once their spears and swords had broken off. This is Herodotus, of course, right? But nevertheless, he's capturing the brutality of hoplite combat. And of course, those who served the Athenian navy also endured terrifying conditions and brutal combat. Aeschylus creates a shockingly vivid account of a mass sea battle in Persians, where the messenger tells the Persian court of their defeat at Salamis. And if I can actually just read uh, a little section of that. Then the Greek ships, seizing their chance, swept in, circling and struck and overturned our hulls, and salt water vanished before our eyes. Shipwrecks filled it, and drifting corpses, shores and reefs filled up with our dead. And every able ship under Persia's command broke order, scrambling to escape. We might have been tuna or netted fish, for they kept on spearing and gutting us with splintered oars and bits of wreckage, while moaning and screams drowned out the sea noise till night's black face closed it all in, losses by thousands. 
I wish I'd translated that, but I didn't. That was uh, Janet Lemke and, and uh, John Harrington. Beautiful translation of the Persians. Probably why I've not translated it, because that's such a beautiful translation. But it captures, right? Here we can see a, a, a Persian survivor uh, telling the story of this terrible battle. It captures the sheer brutality of, of combat at every level. Athens needed its citizens' warriors to aggressively fight to ensure the survival of their community. But what about when these same men returned home and took their place again in Attic society? Plato has Socrates ask this same question in Book 2 of the Republic during a discussion on the correct training of the guardians. Socrates is quite clear on this point. Socrates himself, of course, is a, a combat veteran, famous for his actions at, at Potidaea, which was a terrible mission. They must be violent towards their enemies, but humane at home, this is according to Socrates, or they will destroy their own city. Panhellenic rituals and mythologies seem to have recognised this violence, transformation, restoration motif. If there is indeed a strong connection between these early rituals and myths and later drama, then why did tragedy flourish only in Athens, especially considering Epic's preoccupation with the destructiveness of war and the trials of homecoming? Perhaps here too there is a military political connection that can shed some light on this question and support the theory that tragedy helped serve a specific psychological need in the community at large, one that was bounded together by strong military ties. In Athens, there were several close connections between ancient combat and the theatre. Marching as a hoplite, fighting in formation and rowing a trireme were all dependent on socially cohesive collective movement skills, as was performing in a chorus. Moreover, it is notable that these movement forms were all led by the aulos, uh, an oboe-like double-pipe reed instrument. Well, I thought I had a picture of an aulos, but I don't. But Oh, there it is. There's the aulos player right there, right, piping the... Uh, hoplites into battle, and of course the, the central musical instrument of tragedy. This one. Uh, this is an amazing vase. I wish I had a colour slide, actually. Um, it's from about 490 BC. It's Athenian, and it, it may be our earliest depiction of masks, although well, we spent about four hours in front of this mask when it was at this vase when it was at the Getty Museum and I came away going, I don't know if they're masks or not. I can't tell, but I would love to believe that they are. But nevertheless, here's a, a group of, uh, of, of young men possibly masked dancing in front of an altar in some form of military garb encapsulating that connection between uh, um, military service and the theatre. Significantly, connections between military service and performance were institutionalised by the democratic reforms of Cleisthenes in the late 6th century. These measures were intended to further unify Attica and provide recruitment for the Athenian military. Included among them was a directive that each of the ten tribes must send one men's chorus and one's boys' chorus to, the, to sing and dance a dithyram and complete in the annual city Dionysia. And I pointed out el elsewhere that that's about a thousand people, right? And in a population that somewhere between 30 and 60,000, depending on whose figures you believe, pretty much every single Athenian citizen male would have at some point in their life performed at the city Dionysia. The theatre space itself... Oh, that's working now. Excellent. The theatre space itself was enlarged and improved around the time of the reforms of Cleisthenes, 510 to 500, and again around 430 BCE. 
This coincided with the... Uh, this is not the theatre of Dionysus, by the way. Uh, I'll explain this slide in a minute. This coincided with the Athenian building programme, um, which reinforced Athens' position as the de facto head of the Delian League, a military alliance against Persia, and later Spartan aggression. New archaeological research has shown that, kind of sadly actually, that the theatre of Dionysus at this time may not have been temporary, as has previously been assumed, but was a permanent wooden structure that accommodated between five and 6,000 people. Still one of the largest public structures ever erected in 5th century Athens. Um, I put this up because I think this is you know, a good representation of what that um, original theatron may have looked like. This is called Eco Stadium. It's a football stadium, uh, soccer, I'll translate, soccer stadium in Brazil. And um, <clears throat> this is 5,000 5, seats. And um, many of us now are, are thinking that the archaeological remains that the archaeological reports coming out of Athens now are showing a smaller theatre than we once thought and sadly no circular orchestra in the 5th century. There's absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever. And it may have been a completely frontal space, which I think is very important because most masked theatre is about frontality and about confrontation. And I think that very much fits the themes and emotionality of, of tragedy. However, the, this theatre held the same amount of people as the Penix, where the assembly met to vote on Athenian policy. We might assume that the same Athenian citizens who attended important meetings of the assembly were the same people who attended the theatre, with the addition of foreign dignitaries. Thus, the place where military policy was decided was closely linked to the venue for tragedy. <clears throat> we, we learn later on that at certain points, uh, the theatre, the theatron itself, was used for special meetings of the assembly. Furthermore, dramas were financed by liturgy, imposed on wealthy citizens as a form of taxation. In return, these koregoi could find fame and honour if their production received the highest prize. The other form of liturgy, of course, that competed with was service as a koregos was to finance, fit out and name a trireme, the awed warship that provided Athens with military security. <clears throat> Is that the right slide? Well, maybe. We heard yesterday about the passing out parade. We didn't hear yesterday. Uh, about the passing out parade, you heard from Simon Goldhall yesterday, about the passing out parade of war orphans. We might have talked about that because that's very much Simon's, uh, one of Simon's theories in the Theatre of Dionysia. Another uh, strong performative connection between the theatre and the military. Also in the last quarter of the 5th century, a statue of the healing god Asclepius was brought from Epidaurus to Athens in response to the plague and losses sustained in the Peloponnesian War. Oh, that's why I have this symbol here. Here's, this is, of course, the... EMS symbol, and there's the staff of Asclepius, which is still very much part of that symbol. Some evidence suggests that Sophocles was entrusted with housing the cult statue of the god um, until a sanctuary was completed. This new Athenian Asclepian, the home for the god of medicine and healing, was located on the southeastern slope of the Acropolis next to the Theatre of Dionysus. The connection between healing and the theatre may be far older, and Robert Mitchell Boyask points out the placement of the Asclepian immediately above the theatre of Dionysus is not mere coincidence, but rather it arises first from archaic associations between poetry and healing. The healing found at the theatre was not physical but psychological. Athenian society had been traumatised by invasion, plague, military disaster and almost constant war. Perhaps then, Asclepius' new role was to institutionalise the performative cultural therapy offered by the plays. And of course, you know, one of the most beautiful examples of an ancient theatre is the Theatre of Epidaurus, which, is, which is itself is central to the healing shrine of Asclepius. 
in the argolid. What is now known as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or combat trauma, was certainly familiar to the ancient Greeks. Lawrence Triadal has drawn close parallels between descriptions of certain warrior behaviours in ancient Greek texts and the kind of symptoms displayed by veterans suffering from the effects of combat trauma. One example is Clerarchus from Xenophon's Anabasis, a Spartan veteran seemingly addicted to battle and, according to Triadal, displaying all the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Tritel, who is himself a Vietnam vet, uh, says Xenophon and before him Homer recognised that even in surviving battle, survivors carry with them the burden of guilt and difficulty of living in peace. Survival guilt is something that I'll come back to because it's very common in, in many of the veterans who've attended our programme. They feel great guilt that they survived and that their comrades didn't. In Thucydides, we find a vivid and disturbing account of the retreat from Syracuse, where the sight of the Athenian unburied dead causes shudders of grief and horror in their surviving comrades. Even worse were the sights and sounds of the abandoned wounded. Thucydides describes them pleading with the able-bodied to be taken away, how friends and relatives hung on the necks of their tentmates and tried to follow until their strength failed, and how they shrieked as they were left to die. He noted that dejection and self-condemnation were rife among the survivors. This is an ancient description of what is now termed survivor guilt, and many of the narrative elements incorporated into ancient texts, particularly tragedy, aptly uh, uh, apply directly to modern clinical descriptions of combat trauma. I think it's high time to revisit that most unfashionable of theatrical concepts, catharsis. Ever since Liam Golden declared the meaning of the term as intellectual illumination, most scholars have avoided fully tackling the subject. This is uh, not the time nor the place to launch into a refutation of Golden or to trawl over what we think Aristotle might have thought about catharsis. He never really tells us, which is great, actually. Um, I like it that we don't know. If we instead simply look at the use of the word and its variance in 5th century tragedy, it seems clear that it means purification. But Golden may be onto something because the specific purification known as catharsis involved an act of recognition, an acceptance of what one had done in order to allow a process of mental purification. It seems odd to me that for a culture positively obsessed with purification rituals, especially concerning blood, we have no evidence of post-battle ritual cleansing or purification ceremonies. We know of fairly common pre-purification ceremonies and rituals involving the offering of an animal and the display of its remains or orphans to the army, but our sources are silent when it comes to what happened after the battle, apart from the orderly and jointly negotiated collection of the dead from the field. How did the, this newly militarised culture of Athens deal with this relationship of the living warrior to the dead and the accompanying horrors of combat? And I think we should pause to remember that if you think about Aeschylus, when Aeschylus was born... Athens was not a military power and had hardly even organised itself as, as, as a, a hoplite force. When Aeschylus marches off to meet the Persians um, at Marathon in 490 with, with 6,000 of his you know, <clears throat> middle-class uh, friends, I think they thought they were never coming back. I mean, I think nobody thought that, that they would defeat uh, the greatest uh, land army the world had, had ever seen. Uh, so this sort of rapid um, militarisation of Athenian culture was important, and I think it threw up an enormous amount of tensions that tragedy is uh, trying to deal with. 
This is a question I'm keen to consider in my work and hope we might explore today. Perhaps there is a link between the cult properties of the old rites of Dionysus and the gods' close association with death and renewal. Certainly the South Italians uh, had a very close relationship between Dionysus and the cult of death. The various Dionysus were all spring festivals and all in their own way expressed an explosion of ribald, even violent energy involving the altered states of frenzied dancing, alcohol and the shifting personas of costumes and masks. Other earlier performance forms embraced the notion of trauma and death, such as epic songs and threnody. The influence of both can be clearly seen in the form and content of tragedy. Pisistratus and his circle may have been creating a panetic festival when the city Dionysia was founded around the 530s, but the performances staged there quickly became a reflection of the social angst about warfare to the people who came to watch. It was probably not the stated intention of the festival to present works as an act of state-sponsored mass purification, but if we consider the life-affirming imagery of the phallic procession and those worn in both satire, drama and comedy, the role of music and dance in communicating shared emotional states between actors and spectators, and the narrative preoccupation of the plays themselves, it may not be such a stretch to view Dionysian performance, procession, dithyram, tragedy, satire, drama and comedy as offering an emotional salve to the stresses faced by the people of Attica. And I wanted to put tragedy amongst that list, right? Because I don't think that the Athenians separated tragedy in the way that we do. Yes, it was a distinct genre, but at the festival, they experienced it as, as one of several offerings to Dionysus. In, in a way, the dithyrambic performances were probably, uh, in the fifth, much of the 5th century, certainly the early part, the most popular. And what a stressful time the 5th century was. Two Persian wars, one which threatened to destroy Athens and one that did. I just think about that, right? Think about the population of Manhattan, right? Getting on ships and abandoning it to Al-Qaeda, right? And then, you know, pinning everything on one great war. That's not a fair comparison, actually. Uh, On one great war and hoping that it would be won against all odds and then coming back to rebuild their city. I mean, it's... We have to just stop and think of of the trauma inflicted on on women and children and men and the elderly who had to leave their homes and abandon their city and pin everything on on one great battle. It's unfathomable to us, actually. Um, Add the Peloponnesian War, the plague, the total disaster of Sicily, the brutal infighting between different Athenian factions for control of the city, and Athens' defeat by the Spartans. That's the 5th century, if you're an Athenian. Did seeing their own social, political and personal situations depicted by mass figures gazing directly at them, the frontality again, provide a form of full frontal communal catharsis? I certainly have far more questions than answers, but watching combat veterans respond to ancient tragedy today makes me think that this must be an important factor in what these plays meant for an ancient audience. The Ancient Greeks Modern Lives programme addresses the issues of combat trauma, ancient and modern, by presenting scenes from, Greek, from uh, three Greek plays, Aeschylus' Agamemnon, Sophocles' Ajax and Euripides' Heracles, and part, just to lighten things up at the end, part of book 23 of Homer's Odyssey, which is, which is kind of light, uh, the fir- which is his, the, the, the re- reunification with, um, between uh, Penelope and Odysseus. The first short scene performed at these readings is from the Parados, the choral entrance song of Aeschylus' Agamemnon, the first play in his Oresteia trilogy. 
The chorus members enter to learn where the women of Argos are performing celebratory sacrifices and describe the great task force that was gathered to sail to Troy to reclaim Helen ten years earlier. These elders uh, of Argos tell of an omen seen at Aulis. You know the story, right? Two eagles swooped down and devoured a pregnant hare. The interpretation of this sign by a prophet, that's important, led to the killing of Agamemnon's daughter, Iphigenia before the fleet sailed to Troy, a human sacrifice to calm a savage storm that was devastating the fleet and preventing them from embarking on their mission. Within the sacrificial culture of the ancient Greeks, Agamemnon's observation of the own of the eagles, the prophet's interpretation of this sign, and the ordering of a sacrificial offering prior to embarking upon a war are not particularly remarkable events. Xenophon Socrates remarks, and you observe, I suppose, that men engaged in war try to propitiate the gods before taking action, and with sacrifices and omens seek to know what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. It was quite normal for a commander before embarking on a battle to make sacrifices. But what of a human sacrifice, especially that of a young girl? Walter Burkett has collected numerous Greek examples of pre-battle maiden sacrifice. These include Athenian sacrifices at the sanctuary of the Hyacinthides, uh, the daughter of the mythical Athenian founder king, Erechtheus, who willingly sacrificed themselves to save Athens, and the theme of a tragedy by Euripides of the same name, Erechtheus. In Ag we have a fragment of it, a large fragment. In Agamemnon, the prophet Calchas invokes Artemis as goddess of the hunt and calls for a sacrifice reminding us of the close link between hunting, sacrifice and warfare. This myth clearly resonated with the Greeks as demonstrated by the Spartan commander Agesilaus who attempted to repeat the sacrifice to Artemis at Aulis before embarking on an expedition into Persia uh, in 396 BC. Not a human sacrifice, I might add. The story of Agamemnon's sacrifice of his own daughter predates Aeschylus' Oresteia. It is found in the post-Homeric epics Nosto and Cypria, now lost, apart from fragments, such as the reference to Iphigenia's sacrifice in Proclus, uh, Pindar mentions it, it's possibly in Hesiod, in the Catalogue of Women, and it's in the Oresteia uh, by the 6th century lyric poet Stesichorus. Aeschylus's innovation was to introduce a deeper human element to the story by having the chorus members envision Agamemnon alone in his tent as he wrestles with a terrible decision. Should he kill his daughter to calm the storm, stop the plague and sail on Troy, or should he save her life and abandon his command? I quote uh, from the Oresteia. This is Agamemnon. An unbearable fate will fall on me if I disobey, but how can I bear to slaughter my own daughter, the glory of my house? How can I stain these hands, the hands of a father, with his young girl's blood as it drenches the altar? How can I choose? Both ways are full of evil. Should I desert the fleet and fail my allies? The sacrifice stops the storm. The blood of a virgin must be spilled. Rage craves rage. What must be, must be. Let it be for the best. Now an audience with military experience might well have a different response to this moment than the modern civilian audience member. And, you know, I want to be careful. I'm, I'm not taking a kind of unilateral view that there's one audience view. But nevertheless, I do think that um, we have to consider that the ancient audience would have been predominantly made up of combat veterans. Athenian warriors, whether infantry rowers or cavalry officers, knew firsthand the necessity of strong command. 
Bad leadership or indecision in the field could lead to disaster, a point underscored by Herodotus. He details how the Athenian hoplite army at Marathon was presided over by ten generals who each commanded for one day in rotation. It's a great idea, right? Prior to the battle against the vastly superior invading Persian force, they were split on whether to attack or not. Miltiades, one of the ten, persuaded the Athenian polemarch, war cabinet leader, to vote for the offensive and then waited for his own day of generalship to come to launch his incredibly successful and decisive attack. Herodotus' account shows how a motivated leader used the proto-democratic military command structure to his advantage, just as Aeschylus makes it clear that Agamemnon's staff officers in the guise of the Greek chiefs are described as being too hungry for war. Aeschylus' portrayal of Agamemnon is not an account of a king who heartlessly kills his daughter to gain a blessing for a war he is resolved to see through until complete victory. Rather... It is a terrifying picture of any soldier who has to wrestle with his or her competing obligations between home and family and the responsibilities of duty and command. The story that the winds at Aulis were sent on the Greeks because Agamemnon entered the grove sacred to Artemis and killed one of her stags is completely absent in the Aeschylean version. This account may have been known from the post-Homeric Cypria and certainly found its way into the narrative of Sophocles' Electra, which post-states the Oresteia by maybe 40 years. Instead, we are confronted with the fact of a terrible storm bringing hunger and delay to that wretched harbour. I'm quoting, driving the men to wander on the edge of insanity. <clears throat> Agamemnon's force is starving to death and his ships are rotting. The flower of Greek manhood is starting to wither and waste away. Then we hear that Calchas the prophet, not a god, it should be stressed, but a mortal interpreter, proclaimed a remedy to soothe the storm. And judging from the response of Agamemnon and Menelaus, who were unable to hold back a flood of tears, it's assumed that the prophet introduced the notion of the sacrifice of Iphigenia. But prophets and their prophecies are not infallible evidence of the will of gods in Greek religious culture. Gods do walk the stage in the Oresteia. Athena and Apollo appear as protagonists in Eumenides. So here Aeschylus seems to be setting out a marked distinction between the word logos of a god and the opinion themis of a seer. Agamemnon has a choice. He is not acting on a direct command of a divinity. Aeschylus's dramatic innovation is to depict him distraught and alone as he exclaims via the song of the chorus, How do I choose? Both ways are full of evil. Now, Martha Nussbaum famously views Agamemnon's choices resembling the plight of Abraham on the mountain. A good and so far innocent man must either kill an innocent child out of obedience to the divine command or incur the heavier guilt of disobedience and impiety. That's Nussbaum. Although she acknowledges that the reasons for the wrath of Artemis are not given in the play, she still sees Agamemnon as acting out of fear of divine retribution. Instead of my position, which is a military leader taking responsibility for the men under his command. Furthermore, Agamemnon's rationale is usually explained as being driven by the impulse to fight the war than to save the men under his command. For modern veterans, this scene often takes on another definition, expressing the tension that exists between the responsibilities of military service and the needs of the family left behind when a soldier is deployed to fight in a foreign war. What is quite remarkable is that the immediate result of Agamemnon's decision is described in terms of a complete mental breakdown. His storm-swept psyche veered on an impious course. 
This is a profound description of the kind of mental detachment from societal norms frequently experienced by those who have faced the trauma of combat. I quote from the Oresteia, At that moment he changed, and his altered mind would dare do anything. Such shameless thoughts make mere men bold, maddening minds and reducing them to ruin. In the ancient Greeks' modern lives discussions, here are some, that follow the readings, vivid contemporary parallels have been drawn with ancient mythic ones. One example is a hypothetical scenario used in the course of the programme to ask if modern American society might understand Agamemnon's terrible dilemma and even feel a degree of empathy towards him. <clears throat> so this is a little mind experiment, and I'll try it out on you, OK? It's proposed that there is a modern general who has marshaled a great multinational force in secret ready to launch a surprise attack against an enemy country. This is somewhat similar to the events of the Gulf War in 1990-91. Remember Norman Schwarzkopf, remember him. It is imagined that the enemy country possesses one hidden missile that has the capability to completely destroy the friendly allied forces. However, the allies are under strict radio and communication silence as they prepare to launch their attack and cannot be located by the enemy. So you follow me, right? At the Allied camp, the general has decided to fly his daughter from her home country to join him and stand before the world's media as he announces that the attack is underway. He waits for her as she's being flown in on a military transport plane that is supposed to be flying undetected under the enemy's radar systems. Suddenly, here's the movie version, right? A runner bursts in and tells the general that the enemy has a radar lock on the plane. And they have heard enemy radio communications say they are intending to track its descent and launch their one nuclear warhead on the place where it lands, the Allied camp. Thus a modern version of Agamemnon's dilemma. Our journal cannot communicate with the plane and turn it back, as this will break radio silence and lead to the devastating enemy attack. So he only has two choices. and must decide on one very quickly. He can allow the aircraft to land, take refuge with his daughter in his command, uh, in his command shelter, and risk the destruction of his own forces and those of his allies, so save himself and his daughter, sacrifice his men, or he can send the runner back with a verbal message for a forward air battery to shoot the plane down, which would kill his daughter and save his command. What would he do? So show of hands, right? Who thinks that our modern general would order the plane shot down to save a million men? Who thinks he'd do it? Yeah. Yeah. I know, and it's funny, isn't it? Because when he get, I wonder what our response would be. We would say he made the supreme sacrifice. We may give him a medal. I wonder what his wife would do, though, when he got home, the mother of that child. One of my students turned this back on me. I'm the father of two daughters. He said, what would you do, right? If you are a father, what, I mean, that's tragedy right there, isn't it? What a decision. The Oresteia is brilliant. What can I say? <coughs> And I think, in a way, sometimes creating a modern analogy like that helps people who don't know Greek tragedy to understand the power of some of these arguments being presented. Most audience members of Ancient Greeks Modern Lives readings have reluctantly agreed, like you, that he would destroy the plane to save his army. The chorus members say to Agamemnon on his return, I thought you must have lost all grip on your senses when you dared that sacrifice to save your dying men. But now, from a loyal heart, I say, well done to all those who wrought this joyful end. 
Would the general sentiment of the public sound similar today? And as I say, and what of our general's wife and the mother of the dead child? Would we understand her killing her war hero husband? Is this screenwriters out there? You can take this idea. My wife's like, no. When are you ever going to earn any money? Um, <laughs> is this revenge? Or is she acting to prevent herself and her remaining children, to protect herself? This kind of contextual framing can in turn lead to a spirited public debate and make a direct connection between what is being articulated by the mythic material of tragedy and the personal experiences of the veterans and their families in the audience. In this way, ancient material can act as a catalyst to frank public discourse on very difficult subjects, but also offer a different interpretation of the narrative content of the plays, one from the perspective of an audience of combat veterans. And there, of course, is... Uh, Iphigenia um, from Pompeii going off to, uh, to be sacrificed. I'm not going to talk about all these readings, but I want to point out one more, because I want to leave some time for discussion. Another reading offered is from Sophocles' Ajax, where Tecmessa, the captive spear bride right, uh, of Ajax, describes the events of the previous evening when Ajax returns to their hut in the Greek camp of Troy. She tells how he was covered in blood and was dragging captured livestock which he tortured and flayed, believing them to be the Greek commanders who had the day before deprived him of the arms of Achilles. Tecmessa's situation resonates with the spouses of combat veterans who have frequently related how their husbands or wives return home with a plethora of psychological problems. Now, look, I want to say, not every combat veteran returns home with problems. But I've never met a combat veteran, and I've met many, who has anything good to say about war. It doesn't mean they're not proud of their service. But I think, actually, combat veterans are some of the best people to talk about war. And many of the combat veterans who work with us on our programme talk about the fact that they think that many of us are illiterate about war. So as a democracy, when we vote to go to war, perhaps we should know more about it and more about the consequences and how wars come home. And certainly, the wars in Afghan and, and, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq are coming home. And they're affecting us. Many spouses of Vietnam veterans and returning soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan talk of incessant patrolling in the night, fear of crowds and built-up areas, and drug and alcohol abuse to assist with sleeplessness and stress. <coughs> we translators often euphemistically call Tecmessa a spear bride, a sanitised euphemism for a woman who has been raped, abducted, held against her will, forced into slavery, and witnessed her home, family, and friends brutally destroyed at the hands of the people she's now forced to serve. Ajax killed her family. Now Tecmessa's own survival is dependent on the very man who carried out that kind of destruction. Her status in Ajax's life is made more secure by the child they've had together, but it's clear that Tecmessa has also been part of the collateral damage of war a victim of forced abduction, rape, imprisonment, slavery and trauma. Combat trauma is not just suffered by fighting men, but also by the civilians' war impacts, both in the war zone and back home. Additionally, today's women soldiers serving in war zones frequently face two enemies, <clears throat> the one they have been sent to fight, um, and the belittlement, sexual harassment, assaults and rape they can suffer, and often do, by their fellow male soldiers and superiors. One woman Air Force veteran reported that a male colleague she had always respected told her during an attack that he would kill her rather than let her fall into the hands of the enemy. That's what you want to hear, isn't it, from your own side, right? Because he could not endure to see her raped by the enemy. 
Her opinion in this matter of her own survival on the battlefield was apparently unimportant. Greek tragedy is far from silent on the subject of the effects on warfare on women and non-combatants. Just consider Euripides' Trojan women. This is another important area where the exposure to the ancient material featured in ancient Greeks' modern lives has promoted free and frank public discussion. For Ajax, the reality is a warming that there can never be a life of glory, and his solution is to take his own life. The same scenario might be applied to soldiers suffering from the trauma of combat in any conflict, ancient or modern. Recent figures from a 2009 study in the Journal of Mental Health Counseling reports that the suicide rate for American males in the US military is more than double the corresponding rates in the civilian population. Furthermore, an analysis of a 2010 report on suicide prevention in the US Army states a multitude of interacting factors such as job and personal stress, psychiatric conditions and brain injuries are contributing to a continual epidemic of suicide among returning soldiers. Tritle also wisely points out that many, there may be many more veterans taking their own lives through car accidents, alcohol abuse and other means that are not recorded as suicides. Um, one of the things, I, I work as a volunteer EMT in my town and, and one of the things that uh, we're starting to, to see is um, a lot of um, young Americans uh, join the military and are taught to drive in the military and their experience of driving is driving in Afghanistan or Iraq which is a white knuckle ride because of IEDs and uh, being attacked. So they drive about 100 miles an hour. So they get home and they drive about 100 miles an hour and if they see something out the corner of their eye then they often get involved in a motor vehicle accident. And now they're ramped up. Now the state trooper's on the scene. Now they're fighting the state trooper. Now they're in the criminal justice system. So this is a, a particular new problem that this particular conflict has, has thrown up. And actually the VA have a, a wonderful program with first responders where we often try and identify if they're veterans and try and say to the cop, look, this is a vet. This is something that's going on. Can we take the cuffs off? And this is very, very common. As Sophocles Ajax highlights, the issue of suicide amongst combat veterans may not be a new phenomenon, but a tragic fact for many returning home from war. Suicide in military culture is a great taboo and may account for the general sense that the incidents are underreported. In stark contrast to the code of silence, Ajax places the suicide of a great troubled warrior centre stage. But Sophocles does not present Ajax's suicide as an act of self-resignation by a man too ashamed of what he has done to face his father, nor does he craft it as a result of manic desperation and dejection. Ajax does indeed state he no longer wants to be part of a world where he must equivocate his values, but he also knows that by spilling his own blood, he can activate the Furies, and does indeed call for a curse against the sons of Atreus, that they too will be killed by their closest. This certainly was fulfilled in the case of Agamemnon, who of course was killed on his return home by his wife Clytemnestra. Ajax's suicide threatens to tear apart the Greek army at Troy. The portrayal of an army's commanders at odds with each other is also a trope that resonates strongly with modern veterans. Many have offered accounts of the insanity of their own commanders in fighting and political manoeuvring that placed the lives of the soldiers under their command at great risk. What became known as fragging, killing a superior officer in Vietnam, is another reality of warfare. The Athenians themselves ordered the execution of their own admirals after the successful naval battle at Argonusae for denying men under their command rescue and leaving them to drown. Let me advance on a little bit. just wanted to talk... Do I have a, a little bit more time? OK. Um, just wanted to talk about one of the scenes uh, uh, 
which is um, the messenger speech from Euripides Heracles. Um, I'll paraphrase this actually, which is that um, you know, Heracles returns home uh, to his home in Thebes and um, the, uh, the king has been overthrown. He's married to the king's daughter, Megara, and uh, they're under threat of death by Tyrannus. And they, they, they believe that Heracles is dead. This is Euripides' play, of course. Halfway through, he turns up like a knight in shining armour and uh, I'll take care of this. And he does. He, he kills the tyrant. But he can't stop killing. And um, he's driven insane and uh, he kills his entire family. And uh, we debated whether to include this. Seemed, seemed extreme, but the vets who worked with us um, asked us to. And... Um, This vivid and disturbing account, I'll just read this paragraph, of the brutal and savage killing of a family has produced many strong responses from audiences who have watched the scene performed as part of ancient Greeks' modern lives. One woman told her her mother and father had divorced soon after her father returned from Vietnam, only to remarry as soon as both children had left home. Perplexed, she asked why her mother, she asked her mother what was going on and was told that her mother loved her father but feared for the children after he returned home, changed by his experiences of war. While Heracles may be an extreme example, the scene described in the messenger speech reflects the realities of audience members who have experienced the rage, confusion, fear of violence and altered mental status of their loved ones returning from war. The death of children is also a bitter reality of war and several combat veterans who served in Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan have told harrowing stories of children obliterated by mortar attacks, run over by trucks, blown up by improvised explosive devices meant for American soldiers and shot dead during firefights. Um, just to finish, we recently returned from Greece where we decided to perform uh, Euripides Heracles partly from an experience I had as an EMT uh, where I was called to a scene of two children who'd been brutally attacked by their babysitter who was also their aunt who just went insane with two kitchen knives. And I thought I'd seen quite a lot of violence in my life, sadly enough, but I wasn't prepared to run into this kitchen and to see these two little children and blood everywhere. Um, uh, it, it's ingrained on my mind. I think for me, I found some therapy in, in Ripley's Heracles. I reread that chorus, uh, the, the messenger speech, and I, I saw it completely non-academically. And... Uh, it's funny because I'm English, right, so I don't, I don't believe in therapy, but uh, New York State law mandates that if you, you come across an event like this, I, I should say the kids survived, right? I mean, they, they survived. But it was a, a harrowing experience, and, and none of us on that call wanted to talk about it, and we all felt deep down inside that perhaps we'd messed up or hadn't been fast enough. Um, I, I, I had to drive a seven-year-old girl to, to a hospital with three paramedics in the back um, to a hospital I'd only been to once before in the middle of the night, it wasn't the time to ask for directions um, at about 100 miles an hour. And um, I remember being at the hospital and making kind of dark EMS jokes with, with the state troopers. And then suddenly the mother and father burst into the hospital and the father grabbed me. I was just the first person there. And, and, and are they alive? Yes. And he collapsed and we had another patient. I mean, this was a, you know, it's children. It's a horrible experience. Um, I think these plays capture 
the essence of some of these experiences. And they're brave enough to put them out there and confront you with them. And um, many of the vets also had deep stories about children. Uh, one of the vets, uh, Brian Delart, I'm going to show you a clip of him, uh, played Theseus in a production we did of, of Euripides Heracles in Greece this summer because we created a production. And it was, it was very, very difficult for Brian, this production. And he, he had said, he's a Vietnam vet, he had said that he thought that he had, was over much of this stuff. And actually, working on the production dragged it back up again. And it was interesting because we learned that maybe this is the role of actors in catharsis, that these experiences need to be mediated, that the actual person who's experienced them, then telling you about them, sometimes it's too much to experience. And sometimes the artist has to stand in the middle, or the playwright, or the poet, and mediate that experience. Um, working with combat veterans has been an, an amazing experience for us because we've learned so much from them and their experiences make us very humble. And my experience was very small compared to what they've experienced. But um, I think Euripides is capturing a reality of war and what happens when the war comes home. Uh, here's a shot of uh, our production of uh, Euripides, where we use masks, actually, um, based on my research into masks, which is another workshop and talk for another time. And uh, uh, here's Brian... And uh, we, we took this production to Greece to the Michael Kokianis Center, and, and uh, that was an amazing experience to bring American combat veterans to Athens uh, to perform this play. So I've got one quick... Do I have time to show one quick... I'm going to show one quick clip. Well, now I have to blow up. Here's So the reason I say that one, because I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be on that one. You know, I've never felt that bad for the, uh, the dead or dying, strangely enough. Um, but this one guy who got out, he was fucking missing his, um, his leg. Not that we didn't, <laughs> we didn't take it. Uh, he'd already fucking, he'd lost it like a long time before. And uh, he was on the back of the fucking truck, and we'd take him back to base, and he's got the fucking bound, you know, he's got his fucking arm behind his back with the goddamn zip ties, and he's got the fucking bag over his head. He's only got one fucking leg. And, you know, somebody was just fucking pissed off or whatever, and they just fucking, to get him off the back of the truck, they kind of just, you know, just forced him to fuck off of it and he fucking fell down. And I think that, to me, is the one that, like, that's the... Uh, it's not much. I mean, it's not like it's fucking... It, was the, the, it wasn't the guy who fucking lost his... <laughs> lost his fucking top from a 50 cal. It wasn't the fucking, uh, you know, the GI who got... You know... Because they're fucking gone, you know. Um, but this guy, 
who's just fucking humiliated. Fucking humiliated. For fucking what? You know? He was an old man, practically. So that was, to me, that was the, what the fuck is this, you know, what the fuck? Uh, I had an event where I patched up over 100 bodies. You know, all these wounds. And it's one of the worst war attacks on our base. And I just thought about them. Like, that's not, you know, missing head. That's not that big of a deal. And I'm sitting there going, but should it be? Uh, the, I, I saw a number of bad things. Um, I, I saw uh, bodies, bodies torn up. Intestines hanging out, intact limbs, uh, brain matter on the ground. Um, I remember those things very clearly. For me, uh, I had my year of madness that was painted and had a little, had some violence in it, and and definitely, uh, I did. I really thought about getting out of here. Uh, like, let me just get get out of here. This is too much. I can't deal with it. The wisdom that comes from war is a double-edged concept. <coughs> because many of us come back with such sharp edges, you know, hair, hair-triggered tempers. Um, that they've been a kind of a hardening of the mind. But I, I do think that anyone comes back with a greater sense of vulnerability. It leaves you with a much deeper understanding. It leaves you with a potential for compassion that you could not have had before having seen yourself and so many other people uh, under, under stress. Just knowing how people um, crater make even the slight mistakes under stress. Uh, I think we're so much more forgiving of human imperfection than uh, you know, your, your non-veteran non for whom the world has presented a set of choices and you make decisions and you go forward and it's clear. Uh, things are so unclear in the world of combat. I really believe that um, it's two components that can really help a veteran find restoration are spirituality and community. Yeah. They need a lot of support, those just coming back. You know, those are young young people that that uh, they fought a war and we didn't have to fight. Uh, uh, they're fighting an enemy that we didn't have to fight. It's a new, altogether new type of enemy that they're fighting that we don't, America don't even know about it. We never fought them kind of fights where you just slap a bunch of Dynamite on you and go out and blow everybody up. Women, children, everybody. We, 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 we didn't have to do that. We, we fought, they say we're the greatest generation, but, but I, sometimes I think these, these boys and girls are the greatest generation because they, the things that they're fighting, they don't even know about them. Well, we haven't studied that kind of warfare, warfare you know. So, so it's, it's a, quite a challenge. And I'm just glad I'm 91. I don't have to worry about that. And I, any, any veteran I see on the street, I have to. Be back with problems. Most, 
most of those men that you see on the streets that have been and, and especially coming home, they got mental problems, PTSD or TBI, and therefore they need help, and we must help them. They put their lives on the line, we have to, put, we have to pick them up and show them that we love them. So the reason I showed you that is that um, that's actually the chorus from our production of Euripides Heracles, that what we did was we had these kind of responses as part of this program to these scenes. And what I did is I created questions based on the choral odes of Euripides and asked those questions to these vets. You might have recognised the philosopher Paul Woodruff there and Larry Treitle as well. And these were some of the responses that were then edited. And this is the chorus of veterans from... Um, Euripides Heracles, we actually showed the choral odes as, as movies, and it was incredible, incredibly powerful to think about the chorus communicating in this way and to hear from them and their responses. So thank you very much. Established by Richard and Barbara Frankie, the Frankie Seminars and Lectures are intended to introduce important topics in the humanities to a general audience and to share the work of distinguished visiting scholars. Professor Meinick's public lecture took place at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on November 28, 2012.